Wine is just two ingredients, yeast and grapes. Yet when people talk about how wine tastes, it's described through the lens of fruit flavors or perfumes or other plants and trees. This complexity is the world in which today's guest lives, both physically and metaphorically, meet sensory expert Dr. Hobie Wedler. Passion, dedication, perseverance, and a little serendipity has led him to become a food and beverage sensory expert. The twist? He's blind. Hobie earned a PhD in chemistry at the University of California, Davis, and is the founder and director of the nonprofit organization Accessible Science. He's been recognized many times over for the contributions he's made to science and beverage. In our conversation, Hobie was a fountain of so many ideas that we ran out of time during the original recording and had to resume the next day. I guarantee you, a few of these you can put into action as you look towards your goal for today or even a year from now. Joining in Eric Weinmayer's and Hobie's conversation is guest host, friend of the podcast, Paralympic cyclist, Billy Lister. Now, before we get into it, a thought I had, and probably you did too. Is it true that when people lose one sense, they gain super abilities in the other or another? Or maybe super abilities are through plain hard work. Stick around. I'm producer Diedrich Jonk, and this is the No Barriers Podcast. It's easy to talk about the successes, but what doesn't get talked about enough is the struggle. My name is Eric Weinmayer. I've gotten the chance to ascend Mount Everest, to climb the tallest mountain in every continent, to kayak the Grand Canyon, and I happen to be blind. It's been a struggle to live what I call a no barriers life, to define it, to push the parameters of what it means. And part of the equation is diving into the learning process and trying to illuminate the universal elements that exist along the way. And that unexplored terrain between those dark places we find ourselves in and the summit exists a map. That map, that way forward, is what we call no barriers. Hey everyone, welcome to the No Barriers Podcast. I can't wait for this guest. This is like really interesting and a little bit different than some of our interviews. This is Hobie Wedler. Welcome to the podcast, Hobie. And by the way, I forgot I was very rude. Billy Lister, No Barriers Ambassador, Paralympian cyclist, uh, hell of a handsome man, is my co-host today. Hey, Billy. Good to be here uh, today, Eric, and, uh, and fantastic to welcome Hobie. Thank you all so much. It's an absolute honor to be with you, uh, Eric. This has been a, a kind of a dream of mine to, to chat with you on the show for a long time and uh, really psyched to meet you. Awesome, man. I can't wait. I, I, I am such a huge fan. I have such huge respect for you. And, and that'll launch me into my first question, Hobie, because I'm fascinated how a blind guy, and, and maybe I'm just an idiot, but I mean, like, I'm fascinated how a blind guy goes through a PhD program in chemistry, organic chemistry, because I was always, you know, I, I consider myself kind of a bold person. I'm blind too, but I always kind of tried to avoid science classes. I was always nervous. I always felt like a fish out of water, um, you know, with all the diagrams and everything and, and this you know, the diagrams of cells and, you know, everything's so visual. It's so intensely visual. It, it's just scared me a little bit. And it, and it probably made me avoid a lot of scientific stuff. And I would imagine that's 
the case for a lot of blind people, but you gravitated in that direction. So tell me about that journey, first of all, and, and some of the difficulties and some of the adaptations that you made. Well, first of all, Eric, thank you. Uh, thank you for the question. It's an interesting one. And I, I kind of have the same feeling when I think about a blind guy, you know, uh, kayaking the full Grand Canyon or scaling Everest. <laughs> so I kind of ask myself, how the heck does it work? But exactly. uh, we can talk about that later. One of the things that, that I would say is that, you know, this is very general, is that if you have a tenacity for something and you surround yourself with the right people who believe in you and who have the ability to make it happen with you, any truly anything is possible. And, you know, this idea that certain things are inaccessible to us, I think is just a framework of society. You know, science might be thought of as inaccessible because it really is, is sort of designed to be visual. Diagrams, like you said, um, reading the literature and, and coming across inaccessible papers and this sort of thing are all a hassle. But with some good assistance and some good techniques to create really quick and easy tactile figures of diagrams, I think anything is possible. Specifically for me, I uh, I just loved science. And, and what I the reason I got into chemistry and earned my PhD ultimately was I wanted to teach. I've always had the heart of a teacher and I still do. And one of the most inaccessible parts of science was actually making my lecture materials for teaching accessible to my students with all these visuals and all these little video animations. And I learned this by, from the evaluations after my first class, by the way, I wasn't And now is that teaching enough. class to blind kids or to sighted kids? Or no, to sighted kids. Wow. To sighted kids. School. Exactly. So, so I, they didn't, so, so as the teacher, you needed all that stuff to be tactile as well. Well, right? I knew my material and I knew how to build a PowerPoint presentation that I could just have an assistant in the room to scroll through, but my PowerPoints weren't visual enough. So interestingly enough, making chemistry accessible to my students made it inaccessible to me. And what I would say is that, you know, for me, the hardest part of chemistry was getting material from the literature into my mind and then getting my chemistry results from my mind back into the literature. But the art of doing the chemistry and having the intuition and solving the problems was not the difficult part kind of strangely. Wow. Huh. But so like when you were like in high school, you must have had an aptitude for science, right? Like, oh, I I think we gravitate towards the things that we one love and maybe because we're kind of good at it. So did you just have a natural aptitude for science? I took chemistry and physical science and happened to be, you know, good at it and really enjoyed it and sort of had a knack for it. But the other side of me, and this sort of maybe explains some of my career right now, is that, you know, my parents had no uh, question of what I could do and and never lowered the bar, never lowered the expectations for me or my sighted brother. They also really taught us to fully take responsibility for ourselves and told us that these were our lives to live. And one of my main chores, because we all worked very hard, they taught us great work ethic, was that starting at a very young age, I always loved to cook. And I always loved to mix flavors and see how they blended and and create really interesting flavor combinations. And essentially, flavor and aroma and texture were my paintbrush. And I didn't realize I was learning my skills as an artist and scientist early on when my parents purchased me a 42-quart pot as my 10th birthday present. And my, (laughs) my job was to you know, make soups for them to take to work with them. But that spurred my love for chemistry. And then when I got into to physical science, like I say, I really had fun there. It was funny when it came time to uh, take chemistry in my junior year, 
the opportunity to apply for a test or to apply for honors chemistry and take a test came up. The instructor was totally unsure how she was going to accommodate me and said, well, you can take the test. I think she didn't necessarily think I would get in, but I got one of the high scores on the test. And then it became this like moment of, oh, crap, how do we make this accessible? And <laughs> yeah. Well, so how did they make it accessible? Like, did you have uh, your books in Braille? Did you have uh, diagrams and things like that uh, all so, built tactily? Uh, what about test tubes and, and different uh, chemicals and things like that? Let me just finish that answer really quickly um, to the question I was answering previously, which is, you know, the question was, how are we going to make this laboratory accessible? You know, and, right. and what we what I was able to do is sit down with her and really work out ways to, you know, we found someone who had taken the class the year before me who worked as a TA. She needed credits and we were able to to form this great working relationship where she was not my doer in the lab, but she was my eyes. That's it. She would uh, my tests were brailled and my books were brailled then. And she would basically scribe my answers for me on the exam. I work with assistants to, to gain access to, to chemical measuring equipment. You know, there are companies out there for sure that create accessible measuring equipment, but it really doesn't extend beyond the high school and general chemistry laboratory. So I think that working with an assistant when in the laboratory is the best way to make chemistry accessible um, that way. But, but I've got a deeper story here about accessibility. You know, our instructor, who I just love, and that's what spurred my and spawned my interest in teaching chemistry, is that she just was was so amazing and motivational and, you know, would tell the class, oh, you can do anything you want with chemistry. Think of it as more than a prerequisite. You know, we live it, we breathe it, we eat it, we drink it. And I was probably the only student in that class that really wanted to think about chemistry as more than a prerequisite. And uh, I went to her and I said, yeah, you know, this is something I want to do. How do you recommend I do this as a blind person? And she said, well, Hobie is a blind guy. I don't know how doable chemistry is going to be. And if I'm giving you truly practical advice, I think that uh, studying chemistry might be relatively impractical for you. And I said, you know, like, okay, no problem. I understand, but I got to think about this because I knew I could convince her otherwise. And I remember the day vividly. It was the second week of the second semester. And I approached her classroom very early in the morning when no students were there. And I said, you know, I understand that you think chemistry might not be a practical subject for me to study, but I've got to tell you that nobody can see atoms. Chemistry is a cerebral science. And from that point on and to this day, she's an incredible ally of mine. That's an That's amazing, amazing, incredible yeah, You sound start. so uh, mature as a high school kid. <laughs> and, you know, to, to that point, you know, to that point, Hobie, is, you know, from a resources perspective, you know, is yeah. as, as you're telling the story, and I'm thinking when you get to your, when you're studying your master's and you're getting to that advanced, you know, process, um, you know, through, through your education, you're obviously going to have a lot more, you know, resources at your, at your disposal. Um, but my, my first thought before you just told that incredible part of your story um, is, is going through high school is, you know, most of us in high school, like, you know, resources are extremely thin, right? You know, and they're right. very minimal and, and you have to not only adapt to yourself, but you need to essentially like pioneer those resources for yourself. Um, and, sure. you know, it's incredible how you discovered that, you know, for yourself. Well, thank you, Billy. And one of the things that I would say here is that it's all about, for me, it's all, anyway, it's all about, you know, finding ways to do things and making it happen. And if we let other people do things for us, that's when the, the boat stops, right? That's when it becomes really difficult to figure out ways to make things happen. So for me, 
I'm all about, okay, let me proactively work with, with the team, with my support team to figure out how to make this thing doable. And if you come in, this is my, my overarching thought about accessibility and resources and this whole thing. If you come in with an excited attitude to collaborate and not be against the people that are trying to help you, anyone will do anything to help you achieve your goals because they're winning too. They feel excited about it too. Yeah. And I think if we were to talk about Eric's experience climbing Everest, for instance, your team probably got just as much out of working with you and helping you get up to the top of the mountain and guiding you as just as much, if not more, than you got from the experience, right? For sure. I mean, we had a world record uh, when I reached the summit. It was the most people from one team to reach the summit of Everest in a single day. And they attribute that to the fact that we were such a tight team and they all wanted to be at the summit to celebrate with me. So I take credit for that and love, love that uh, piece of the connection. But I also say it can't, it can't all be, uh, you know, sunshine and rainbows, right? So hope you must've had some challenges and difficulties, you know, as, as you're, as you're trailblazing, you know, this path for yourself and finding yourself and, and discovering this passion and this love. Yeah. You know, tell that us you about have. the fires you lit and the, uh, the explosions that you caused. Uh, in <laughs> <Yeah>. class. <laughs> you know, there are some there. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, it's interesting because I actually Hobie, didn't that's how to... he went blind, actually. In the, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I drank too much methanol, right? Thinking it yeah. was ethanol. No, I'm kidding. Eric, don't um, take that as a lesson from this discussion. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that I would say, though, is that, you know, a lot of people think it must have been so hard. You must have had to tell so many people what you could do and, you know, really push people to, to new levels and this sort of thing. And for me... It totally wasn't about that. I had a few instructors, two that I can think of at UC, at University of California, Davis, where I did my undergraduate and graduate career, who like said, yeah, you shouldn't be studying chemistry. You know, what are we doing letting a blind person study chemistry? And I was a little bit hurtful. But everyone else who I approached with that attitude of, hey, let's do this together, said, okay, we don't know what you can do, but let's learn right. together what we all can do. So I'd say, of, of course, I've never taken advanced organic synthesis but you've also never taught a blind person. So I've got some stuff to teach you and I know that you've got plenty to teach me. Let's work together. And, and one of the things here that's, that's interesting is that, you know, I spent my whole undergrad career showing the chemistry department at Davis what I could do. So when it came time for grad school, first of all, I met an amazing mentor who's a computational chemist at Davis. But beyond that, I didn't, and, and that's one of the main reason I applied to school at Davis. One of the other reasons, which is not, too close of a second, which is definitely a close second, is that people at Davis knew what I could do and they mm, believed in right. me and I didn't have to convince other people of what I could do. And Eric, I think we could have a whole- You didn't have to prove uh, all over again as you right. started your graduate program, right? Right. And I think you and I could have a multi-hour conversation about that that thing of how, how the hardest part of getting to do stuff might be showing people and convincing people that you can do it. You know, I've had experiences where, you know, I've, I've talked to, to groups of people and, you know, corporate CEOs and whatnot will come up to me and say, I could never do that. And I'm cited. Well, yeah, but do you really like science? And I'd be curious about people that walk up to you and say, I'm cited and I could never cross Ever or climb Everest. And, you, you know, the question might be, yeah, but what kind of shape are you in? Somebody called it the even eye syndrome. Even I couldn't do that. And you're like, well, yeah. you're, you're, you're 50 pounds overweight and you live in Iowa and, you know, you've never, and you smoke cigarettes. What makes you think that even with two perfectly working eyes, you're going to be able to do that? I don't know. That's a little rude, Hobie. Sorry. That's a little off the cuff. 
<laughs> hey, so hey, I love Iowa, by the way, just for the record. Exactly. Sorry, I didn't mean to bust on Iowa. So I, I do agree there that you know you have kind of overly simplified two kinds of people: the people that are like your professors, like, hey, we'll take this as far as we can. Like I, I'll learn along with you, and I'm I'm open to to being vulnerable and learning along and taking this as far as we can. And then there are the people for one reason or another. They don't they don't have the time, they don't have the energy, they don't have the inclination, the mindset, and they're just like, ah, this isn't going to work. So, uh, so th- I think that's a, a really good takeaway for people is that you're you're looking for the people that want to partner with you and want to see how far you can take it. Totally. And if we can find the supporters out there of which anyone, look, if we make ourselves available and accessible and we approach things with a truly open mind, and this is probably one of the most valuable messages I can share with your listeners, you can do anything you want and there will be no barriers in your way. If first of all, you have a positive attitude and an open mind and you surround yourself with people who are positively minded and open-minded as well. You know, the minute we start to to sort of narrow our mindset and our focus based on people who don't necessarily believe in us is the time that we struggle to achieve what we want. Science, you know, you're 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 mixing like chemicals and things like that and and things change colors and that, you know, but that's not going to do much for you. So what pops for you in science? So moving it into the sensory stuff. Like yeah. when you were in school, what was interesting? Like for your senses, what what could you experience through your senses in science, in, so, in, bi- in, in chemistry? I'll answer that question in a couple of different ways. One of the first things that I'll say is that so much of what we experience in chemistry is invisible to the eye. You know, if we right. think about the entire electromagnetic spectrum as being from, you know, two nanometer long waves, and there are plenty of waves shorter than that, all the way down to several meter long radio waves, we have this huge wide spectrum that, I don't know, if it would spread across the entire United States, the part that we could see would probably be about a mile or two. It's a very, very small range that we can see. So we actually, a lot of sighted chemists are blind to what's happening in the test tube, and we have to build instrumentation that is literally their cane or their microscope or their way of seeing what's going on. So we don't think about it that much, but so much of chemistry and science in general is building tools to observe things that we all, whether we're blind or sighted, cannot see. And second to that, you know, for me, what, what really pops about the world for me is being able to use my senses to really explore. So I, like I said, I realized early on that my paintbrush was flavor, aroma, and texture. And the, the art that I could do and that I could truly experience was, you know, flavor. And I, I'm not saying that every blind person is someone who, who has these, these sensory capabilities. I've worked on them just like you worked on climbing, Eric, just like a great guitar player, virtuoso guitar player practices for six hours a day. I have totally honed my craft as a guy who has a really good palate and has the ability to smell something and say, okay, I know what's in this. Here's how we can adjust it to make it even better. And here's Guzzling we- different kinds of hot sauces for six <laughs> hours a day. <laughs> we don't guzzle in this industry. We just we okay, take no that. guzzling. <laughs> yeah, but but the the bottom line here is that is that it's all about you know okay when you smell something in like a carrot on the aisle of your grocery store, remember that smell, and you will find I guarantee that smell of carrot around you 
so many different places, so many different areas that you were least expecting it. So it's really about not having a vocabulary for color necessarily, but having a really strong vocabulary for, you know, aroma and flavor. And that's where I've been able to take my, the thing that I've been able to do, which is really exciting for me and for our clients, hopefully, is, uh, you know, take that ability to really taste things and understand at a chemical level what's similar and what's different to other more well-known compounds. And then not only take that information and say, here's how you can improve it, but fully understand the chemistry of that system in, in the food and drink world I'm talking about here and, and really align it with what makes sense. You know? Well, it's so, uh, it, it's so interesting and fascinating to think that train of thought. Because one of the things that I was really that really piqued me of oh, some of the things that you said, you know, in in your I think it was in the in the in the TEDx talk that you gave in in Sonoma County um, was just regarding just overall human evolution and our over reliance on our our sense of sight, um, and this is you know across all humans, you know, just that that humans just have developed this this reliance and this priority on our eyesight. And how that's kind of interacted with your life that when you had a teacher that you were just learning and, you know, expressing your desire and drive and passion and pursuit of something that you love, they never focused really on your intelligence, your, your ability, you know, your heart your anything. They only focus on the fact that you couldn't see, you know, and it's the same ancillaries, you know, to Eric and, and just, you know, that we were just talking about that if only, right, you know, that if only you had your eyes, right, like, what could you do? And I think it's it's something that is very powerful to become aware of, you know, because I'll, I'll admit myself as a sighted individual, I'd never had that clarity and that thought of like, wow, you know, m- you know, myself, like, you know, really focus so much, like just with my eyesight and, and not necessarily neglect all of the other senses, but certainly, you know, not rely Pass on over them, them for sure, right? Much. And Hobie, you call that sensory a part of that sensory literacy, which I love that. Yeah, I love that. It just says so much in that phrase. I w- I did this dinner in the dark with no barriers, and there were sighted people in there, and they're like, "Are we eating chicken? Are we eating steak?" And I'm like, "You can't <laughs> tell the difference between chicken and steak, like when you're not looking at your plate. It's amazing, uh, well, you know how underutilized some of our senses are for the." For those sighted people. I want to just take a quick minute to respond, first of all, to Billy. You know, yeah, I I get what you're saying that a lot of people focus only on what they can see and, and, you know, question only the fact that, okay, Eric and Hobie can't see, but stop focusing on what they can do. I think that is true, but it's only for a temporary time. And, And my favorite thing is when I can get to know someone really quickly and get them very quickly past, oh, he can't see. And more on to who is this person who happens to be blind? And I pride myself in being able to do that. I'm not worried about picking fights with people because, oh, you, you, you know, all you think about is the fact that I can't see. My thing is like educating people and showing them what the, what the power is here. And for me, sensory literacy is really very simple. It's the fact that we use our eyesight to obtain 85 to 90% of our senses from our surroundings. And that means that we're using four additionally additional perfectly good senses to take in only 10 to 15% of the world, which means that we can really refocus. And I think that what we'll find when we use our non-visual senses is that it's more relaxing. Now, I'm kind of a stressed out guy, so do as I say, not as I do. But when you 
when you get up and you go to work and you're thinking about your stressful day at work, I don't care where you are, whether you're in, you know, Iowa, whether you're in California, whether you're in New England, whether you're in wherever, take a minute and smell the air or in any other country, smell the air outside, smell that freshness, think about what it is you smell and let that really calm your mind where you're not focused on, oh my gosh, what notification just came in from my phone? What do I need to do? It is my makeup look good enough. Am I, am I doing what I need to do? Okay. Is, is everything going well? Vision can, eyesight can be distracting and just let your other senses flourish and tell you about the world that we live in. Wow. I want to play a little, I'll play a little quick game, uh, you know, right now with both of you guys. So you, the two of you only having, uh, you know, four available senses, how would you rank in importance, uh, you know, those four senses for you? Hobie, I'm going to guess that scent and smell is, is your top one. And Eric, I'm going to guess that touch is, uh, you know, your, your top one, but I'm very curious as to what, how the other senses rank in, in your lives. You know, for me, I, I'm just going to speak for most people. Yeah, I think I probably use my senses of smell and taste more than maybe some other people do. But I also use my ears all the time to read traffic, to know when to cross a street safely. I use my fingertips to touch things and read Braille and whatnot. But yeah, I'd say the senses that I use for my work on a daily basis are probably more smell and touch, smell and taste. I've studied this, though, and what I've found is that for society in general, our use of our five senses decreases in order of vulnerability. So there's an inverse inverse relationship between vulnerability and how much we use that sense. So our eyesight, I mean, you can be sitting on your couch and look out the window and see the moon, right? You don't have, you're not very vulnerable. The moon's not going to come get you, right? Hearing is the next least vulnerable. You know, you can hear fireworks from across town or whatever. When we touch something, we actually literally have to set our hand on it and make it a part of us. So that's getting more vulnerable. We have to get close enough to the object we can touch to feel it. And then smell and taste, we literally have to make something a part of us, whether we're breathing it in through our nose or actually wow. tasting it in our mouth. So those senses tend to be far more vulnerable vulnerable, and far more underutilized. Because it has to take that individual and person outside of, I mean, their proverbial comfort zone to to actually experience, you know, that, you know, that sense. Wow. Correct. Eric, where would you rank your senses? Oh, okay, yeah, I didn't answer that. Um, yeah, I think you're totally right on me, Billy. The touch, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> definitely touching. You know, like if I'm climbing an ice face, you know, I'm using my ice tools and I'm actually scanning them across the ice like a long white cane. Like I'm getting tons of feedback from the tip of that blade uh, and my crampon points under my feet and my hands when I'm rock climbing and my feet when I'm rock climbing. Uh, so, so I think you nailed it. Definitely for me, probably touch over everything else. But, but like Hobie, definitely audio hearing is really important. As a blind man, I, I would be in trouble without my hearing. Um, and, and, you know, like I'll be able to decipher things because I paid attention. Like, uh, I don't know, somebody uh, dropped a quarter the other day and I said, oh, that's a quarter that just hit the ground. Like I know the difference between a quarter and a penny hitting the ground. Just, and, and so maybe that's a question for Hobie because people ask me this all the time. They go, when you lose your sight, do your other senses get better? And I'm always really careful about answering that because I, I, I don't want to give this misperception that like, you know, once you lose your sight, all your senses become bionic and you're like some kind of superhero and you can smell a cheese sandwich from a 
across the neighborhood. You can smell a McDonald's cheeseburger cooking, you know? We don't become Daredevil. Yeah, you become Daredevil. <laughs> and so I'm really careful about that. But also I do know about neuroplasticity and things like that. Like when I started learning Braille, it was just indecipherable dots on a page. And over time, they began to enlarge and, and I began to notice more details. And I think those are neural connections being built um, to my fingertips. So in a way, I think maybe you do actually become a little bit bionic. You know, I don't think it's that, I think that's a great question, first of all, Eric, but I don't think it's that anything becomes better than other people's senses. I, I think that anyone could train themselves to do, sighted, blind, deaf, hearing, no matter what, whatever we do. Like, you know, you look at a, a great guitarist, I'll use this analogy again, and you say, how does she do that, Right wow, that's just amazing. You know, I am blown away by that. The truth is the reason she can play guitar that way is because she practices. For Eric and I, if we're going to cross a street, we literally put our lives on the line. And if we're not listening to traffic and we walk into perpendicular traffic that are driving on the street that we're crossing, we're done. So we learn to use our ears really well and differently than sighted people do. But I don't think my hearing's any better than yours, Billy. For instance, I don't. I, I think that I've learned to use my hearing differently than you use your hearing, but I don't think it's any better. And I don't think my sense of smell or taste are any better than other people's. I have literally just spent decades, and I mean literally decades, practicing and honing them. But I don't think my skills are any better because I'm blind than anyone else. I just think that I have had the ability to refocus my attention on my other senses. And by the way, don't you think a lot of sighted people, uh, Billy, are like, are pretty good at this too, actually. They're just, they have a natural inclination. I was walking through the airport one year and they said, I, I was like, well, how do I find the bathrooms? Like, how am I ever going to know where the bathrooms are? And the sighted security guard walked up to me. He goes, yeah, he goes, the way you tell is that it goes from carpet and then it goes to like a hard surface. And where the hard surface is, that's where the bathrooms are found. And I'm like, how the hell did this sighted guy know that? <laughs> like, he's, it, he's a better blind guy than it me. It is. It is. And I think, it, I think, I think that gets to a, a broader global problem, you know, that I think a lot of people suffer from. And that's just a lack of observational skills. Um, you know, regardless of what senses that, that you're using, is that people have a tendency to, to, live, in their, to, to live in their own in their own world and in their own bubble um, and, and don't have the observational skills or adapted those skills, uh, you know, to notice things like that. I want to take this minute just to make a quick point, Billy, which is that I've never met one sighted person who doesn't want the best and, and literally is like against blind people. And I hear all this talk about, oh, blind people are discriminated against this, that, and yeah. the other. That's not the case. It's just that they don't know any blind people. And, when you meet someone, and Eric, I, I think you can you can attest to this, but when I meet someone who like grew, especially someone who grew up with a blind adult at a young age who was capable and independent, they have literally no barriers for what they think we can do. Uh, it's like you can do whatever the heck you want. Nice plug, by the way, Hobie. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> there you go. Absolutely. I see. I'm always thinking about that. Uh, that's why. That's why I'm a weird scientist that also loves marketing, but. But the bottom line is that nobody is malicious. And, and I want you to think about, like, 
I'm sorry, I'm just sort of going out on a out on a limb here, but I want for the it. listeners to think for a minute about, you know, anyone who they might look at and and judge and think, oh, you know, I I don't know what this person is is all about. I don't know if I should talk to them. I don't know if if they'd be interested in me. You know, whatever the case may be, or oh, I I don't know. This person must live a a, a kind of a depressing life. Like you know, we make we make judgments like this all the time, and I think we often make them based on our eyesight. So I'm working on a book right now called It's, you know, It's Not What It Looks Like. Don't judge a book by its cover. Because I think that the power of being open-minded and having an abundance mindset and doing whatever it is we want really stems from that ability not to judge or not to hold back based on just merely things that we don't necessarily know. I like that abundance mindset. I like that a lot. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's powerful. That's really powerful. Now, specifically with with you, Hobie, this idea of sensory literacy moves on to the next level, which is like this idea of sensory designing. So that's really where you've made your career and your expertise. So tell us about that, what what that is. So thank you. And I, and I, I really think sensory design is a really important thing. I do most of my work these days in the food and beverage world, which makes a lot of sense because we're designing products to taste better and and have have just that that pop that gets people excited and wants them coming back. But I've also done work in the tech industry, in the automotive industry, and in all sorts of industries, just really complementing. I'm not I don't consider myself a designer, but I'm a strong design thinker, and I love to be a consultant with design teams that focus so much on the way their design looks that they lose track of how it sounds or how it feels or how the pieces they're using to build their their product may smell or taste, and come in and really say, hey, how can we make this better? So one of the, I'll just give you an example, one of the projects that that I'm working on right now, and actually thank you very much to the uh, Sorel team and and to Skylar Roki, our PR uh, agent, for making this all happen. Just a shout out to my friend Jackie Summers, who owns Sorel. Uh, Sorel is a a Caribbean-based liqueur it is starts with a hibiscus-based tea, and then that tea is has sugar added and alcohol added, and then we do a complex filtration, and then we bottle it. But the bottom line is that I came in uh, earlier this year and was able to help them really rethink how they formulate the product, how they can make the product even more shelf-stable, and how they can scale up the process and the product that they make, because they were making 180-gallon batches before, and we're on the way to allowing them to make 10,000-gallon batches that are cheaper to make and even taste better than uh, than they did before. And that's a lot of the work that I'm doing. So I'm a businessman. I have a business mind, but I'm pairing that with my palette and with my, my sort of design thinking brain to really help create solutions, ideally, that are still affordable, but that create an even better and more robust product or experience. And, and very much through the adoption of technology as well, too, I would imagine. You got it. Yeah, a lot of that is through through the adoption of technology. And one of the things that, that Jackie and I chatted about, by the way, I'm really excited to work, be working with Jackie Summers because he's the first black distiller in the United States. I'm one of the first blind food scientists, and we're working with the oldest distillery in the country, literally with distilling license number one, Laird & Company, and they've been around since wow. 1780. So it's a really fun. I mean, it kind of kind of is like a three guys walk into a bar sort of sort of story. And we we love what we do. But one of the things that, that the owner Jack and I talked about is that 
you know, if we could get a label that was a little more grippy on your hand, it'd be easier not only for someone with mobility disabilities to, to hold, but bartenders who are working really ah, fast and need yeah. something to be able to grip easier. And so we changed to a new label. And if you find yourself a bottle of Sorel, you'll notice now that the label is, is, much, is very grippy. It's almost a little bit rubberized, so it's easy to hold the bottle. And what's crazy about this is I sort of thought, thought of this with Jackie thinking about people that might have a hard time picking up a bottle with a disability. But if you think about that, think about how many people you help and, you know, that you weren't even thinking of when you designed that. That brings me to the, the wheelchair ramp or the curb cut, which were designed for people in wheelchairs. But I read a study that said that the people that use curb cuts now who are actually in wheelchairs makes up between one and 2% of all the people that use them. So it's right. it's a fleetingly small population that uses these that are amazing t- tools for all of and us. And everyone benefits, right? right? Yeah. Right. Talk about the taste stuff uh, that you do. You know, so Sorel, you're working with this liqueur. And do you, how does the process work? Like, do you taste it and you say, like, it needs more this or that or like... T- talk us through the mechanics of how that works like because because yes there's a science but also there's as i guess you talk about there's an art of just like preference of taste like that might taste good to me but not to someone else totally. how do you how do you go through that process is there kind of some kind of a procedure yeah you know for me i need to i need to taste a product if i'm going to work with someone on a product and it this is always the case i need to taste it and we sign an NDA and we understand exactly what goes in it and how it's made. And then we take the next step of thinking about, okay, how can we improve this? So in the case of Sorel, the, the formula is decided on. The, the owner loves the flavor he's established and I love it too. And I wouldn't be one necessarily to comment and say, oh no, it's got too much of this or too much of that because it's a formula from his childhood, from his Caribbean roots in Barbados. So I'm here to say, okay, how can we take this flavor and make it easier and cheaper to make and probably even a little bit better? How can we brighten it a little bit? Uh, How can we make these fine tweaks and fine adjustments but really scale it up? If I'm if I'm working with someone from scratch on what we call product development, that's where we can say, okay, this is where you're starting. Here are some ways that you can really, really improve that. And, you know, a lot of sensory science is a big field, and I don't claim to, to be, you know, a sensor, a trained sensory scientist. I was trained as an organic chemist, but I'm working as a food scientist, flavor scientist, sensory scientist, and and honestly, sensory sort of poet and expert all at once. But what I've done is I've spent a lot of time talking to people and figuring out what appeals to different populations. And I can taste something and really, really understand with you without all the research and all the statistics how that product will will appeal to your audience and how we might make tweaks and adjustments to make it appeal even better to your audience. So it's sort of a, I'm sort of a sensory panel of one and my friends have called me the, the Simon Cowell of the, uh, of the flavor <laughs> world. You know, I don't, I don't tell people, Oh no, your stuff's going to be bad. It's rubbish or anything like that. <laughs> I'm here to hold your hand and say, let's just think about these small tweaks that could make it even better. And I've been able to do a lot of that with Jackie as well. And, you know, at least he says he's been happy with the work that's come out. Let's hope. Uh, let's hope it all comes out well in the end. You have your own product line too, I think, right? Of some of some. I do some culinary stuff. Yeah, yeah I do. So, got, got so you own. designed that, right? You designed all of that in terms of how to maximize the taste. Exactly. Yeah, Hobie's Essentials is uh, my line of spices, and um, you know we're we're currently uh, 
selling out of our, our first run of product because we need to, this is design thinking, right? You do one thing and you iterate and you, you, you adjust based on feedback. So people didn't like the pouches that I packaged it in as much as they would like polyethylene, you know, bottles. So me, and, and, and it's not just me, I need to be really careful here. My business partner, Justin Vallandingham, who's a childhood friend, is an integral part to all of my work. And it's just been a, a powerhouse and keeps is the yin to my yang and keeps my head on straight and does all of our operations and, and keeps me knowing what to do when, because if it weren't for him, I wouldn't know what to do when. It's a great lesson, you know, for uh, for young entrepreneurs, you know, in how to uh, how to design, uh, you know, a perfect product market fit. You know, and that is, uh, you know, quintessential, um, you know, for a uh, for a young company and for a young entrepreneur. Yeah, big time. Hobie, you started out, you know, getting a PhD in, in chemistry, and then you moved into this uh, sensory design, which is like really trying to understand senses and tastes and how we make our decisions. And now you're growing that into a business in this incredible entrepreneurial way. So what, tell me, this is a fascinating intersection between science, uh, entrepreneurialism, and art. How do they all kind of work together, in your opinion? Well, that's a really great question, Eric, and I appreciate you asking it in that way. It's something that I just love talking about. You know, a lot of people look at science and art and they say, you know, they compartmentalize us, right? Okay, you're a science person. You're an art person. Um, and I think that couldn't be further from the truth. So for me, I've always loved science and I've, I've worked as, you know, the reason I'm doing what I do, I said before, is because I have the heart of a teacher. I love science, but I also am a creative thinker and always have been. And in my teaching, I like to think of creative ways to explain things, but also in flavor design and sensory design. That's using tools in our toolbox, one of which is chemistry, in order to do art and really be creative. So really simply put, I think science and art are some of the most intersected fields I can think of. And if we can straddle that intersection, that's when we're really, really succeeding and putting our best foot forward. So let's think about, just take an example of building a house, right? The science of building a house is everything that you need to construct that house, the floorboards, the concrete for the foundation, the you know framing, the screws, the nails, all these things. Art is how you design it. Where do you put things? How do you build it, right? The, the construction worker and the architect are the artists using tools that are, you know, in this analogy, the science. And then to bring entrepreneurship into the field, you know, I've never been the type of entrepreneur that just is greedy and wants to make a bunch of money, right? That is not, that is the antithesis of who I am. And sometimes when we talk about entrepreneurs, people can think of, oh, this person just wants to, you know, wants to make a bunch of money quick. To me, it's completely the opposite. Entrepreneurship is about solving problems. And for me, as a blind person living in a sighted world, you can attest to this too, Eric, it's all about finding solutions, finding workarounds, finding solutions to problems, making everything work in the best way possible. So I, I decided kind of early in life, hey, if I can form you know, solutions to problems that a lot of people are facing and make a business out of those problems and continue helping people solve them, that's when we're winning. And that's when we're really allowing ourselves to do our best work. So I, I've got the science education. That's the, the what for building the house. I, I, I've got my love for art and creativity. That's the how. 
And then the entrepreneurship is sort of blending it all together. It's the mortar that holds the wall together, the pieces of the wall together, and really gets us thinking about what problems can we solve and what is the most equitable, uh, inclusive, and, and diverse method to solve these problems, not increasing, you know, uh, directly increase diversity and inclusion for, for the sake of being diverse and inclusive, but really using diversity and inclusion to create multiple ways of thinking and multiple ways of solving problems, which whether you like it or not in business is going to increase your bottom line. But that's, and, and that's a great point, you know, to the, to the power of the entrepreneurial mindset, right? Is that, right. you know, the entrepreneurial mindset is just exactly like, as you stated, you know, it's, it's trying to take an issue and a problem and, and, and solve it. However, whatever process in whatever way is, is, is best fit to do so. Um, but that opens exactly. up so many different types of, of, uh, of ways for accessibility and voices to come to the table and be able to, to solve those different problems in, in many different ways. Um, and that's what's so amazing about becoming an entrepreneur and, and adopting that is because it can be, uh, you know, it is a lifestyle, um, you know, all based in a, uh, in a changing mindset. And I love the fact, Hobie, that, you know, this message that you can blend these three together because in the traditional sense, you always think about, a, you know, you're either a scientist or an entrepreneur right. or you're artistic, but the three don't really come together. What I'm hearing you say is that science becomes the foundation, the structure, the process absolutely that kind of frees your mind to be able to think creatively and launch you into kind of a creative mindset of being able to solve problems. That's that's really rad. Well said. Thank you. And that's exactly the way I think about it. I'll just add one more thing to it, which is that in order to, to be able to really straddle all three of those, you have to be tenacious and be willing to challenge yourself in every step of the way. Because, you know, any one of these, these different fields can combine with the other two, but it can be a challenge, right? Figuring out all the moving bits and, and moving parts, there's a lot to keep track of. So, but you know, there, 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 there's that, also an aspect that I want to kind of get your thoughts on a little bit too, because you know, earlier in our conversation, we were talking about an amazing aspect of, of I think, what you've identified is, you know, for a young entrepreneur, um, is you know, product market fit, um, you know, is trying to have something and whatever you're creating, whatever business or whatever problem you're solving, you need to have an addressable market and you need to have, you know, somebody who's gonna, right. you know, you know, actually, you know, come in and buy and utilize your service, um, and so. While it's it's really interesting and amazing to connect all these three different things, um, you know, from a unique um, and fascinating uh, way, I mean, is, is there actual, um, is there something for you to take advantage of? Is there something for you to, to benefit from and to actually be a successful entrepreneur in this space that really has not developed, you know, really ever? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's a great question, and and it's it's all about finding out where our strengths are. And this is what I would encourage all your listeners to do: really do a deep dive and ask yourself what it is that you love, right? And what what is it that doesn't feel like work? So for me, things that don't feel like work that are quote unquote part of my work are uh, doing presentations of the of the tasting in the dark that we mentioned using any number of foods and beverages tasting things and helping, you know, reformulate and redesign flavor and anything having to do with design or marketing. I just love these things and they don't, they don't feel like work to me, right? So they become easy. And, and really, you know, I've been able to take, and I feel very, very blessed and very lucky 
to have been able to take something like blindness that a lot of people think of as a disadvantage and changed it into a total advantage because I have a unique perspective on the world and I have these skills to sort of marry with it. So my, my ask and my, the, the thing that I would love for all the listeners to do is to really think about what is your thing that is your true advantage, whether people see it as an advantage or a disadvantage, and how can you push that best foot forward to really achieve your own success? And by the way, so much of success comes with taking challenges. And who knows what success means? I don't know if I'm successful. I'm just, I just feel like I'm always trying. I'm always working. I'm, I'm, I push myself very hard. But am I successful? I don't know. You know, the, the bottom line is as long as you're happy and as long as you do something that you totally love, you are successful. And you should embrace that opportunity to just take something new on and get excited about it and push yourself, challenge yourself in every way possible. Because what I find happens when I challenge myself is I am so rewarded. It's such a wonderful feeling when those challenges are, are end up being successes. And if we fail, guess what? If we fail, we learn. I don't like that word fail, but if we if our challenges don't work out the way we had planned, we 100% learn from them and learn from those opportunities. So I think mistakes are the best way to learn. And yeah. sometimes a challenge, Eric, you and I know this, and, and Billy too, feels like it's just a mountain in front of us, right? I can recount the first night of grad school. There was a welcome party. And, uh, you know, I knew that this I was just a bachelor's. I just gotten my bachelor's degree. And now I'm going in for my PhD. And I knew it was a five to six year process. And I, I went home and I was really upset. I said, oh, man, how am I going to do this? This is going from here to a PhD. That seems insurmountable. And when I talked myself out of that, I realized that all I'm doing is taking one huge challenge and breaking it up into bite-sized pieces. And that's what I've done all along in my life. And that's how I've really been able to thrive as a blind person, right? Is, is challenging myself in so many ways, but being able to break those challenges up into little pieces. What is graduate school? Well, it started with the first week of classes. Okay, I made it through that first week. Then we had to submit our first problem sets. Okay, I made it through that and I did well on them. Now it's time for the midterm. Now it's time for the next problem set. And then eventually the final exams. Okay, the first quarter of classes are done. You know, do that again, quarter after quarter until it's time to start researching. What is research? It's just chipping away at an iceberg one day at a time, working on one or a few problems that you're, that you're trying to solve. And sometimes the problems get solved and sometimes they don't. But we learn as we're going. And it comes time for the qualifying exam and the third year seminar where you present to your peers. All these things feel like, you know, hurdles, but they're mini hurdles in the grand scheme of thing. And then when it came time to write my dissertation, which ended up being over 900 pages, I wrote five pages a day for huh. a year. And I was traveling a lot, so most of my dissertation got written on airplanes. But it's all about taking these, these seemingly impossible challenges where our brain normally likes to shut off and say, oh, I can't do that. Oh, that's too much. And being able to say, wait a minute, I, I might not be able to tackle this whole thing today, right now, in this hour, but what can I do? And how can I get a little bit closer to that end goal? Hobie, can you uh, go a little bit more into uh, your aversion 
know, of the word failure, because you don't strike me as an individual, you know, who, you know, has a has a fear of failure. So so why do you could you explain a little bit why you don't necessarily, you know, like that word? Sometimes when we use the word fail, it just, you know, to me, I'm not afraid of the consequences. I'm not afraid of not succeeding. But sometimes that word can imply flunking, just disappointing, dropping out. I failed. I failed chemistry. I've heard so many people tell me that. That means to me you're done. You never want to think about chemistry again. What it really, when we use the word fail, I, I don't think of it having this context. It's just that so many people think of it as like, that's the final straw. I'm done. This is it. You might remember Billy Huher uh, talking about this subject. You know, Huher is a double-leg amputee and scientist so, yes. at, uh, at the Biomechatronics Laboratory at MIT. And he told me on this very podcast that, uh, you know, a lot of these incredibly genius MIT students fail in the laboratory because you're, you're quote-unquote failing 99% of the time. You know, yep. most things don't work the way you want them to or you hope that they would and and that just works you know just just tears people apart you know who are perfectionists so he's like look i mean you you got to see the time in the laboratory as adventure you know where it's leading you is not a failure you're learning all the time and it's an adventure and uh and i thought that was a really nice connection with what you just said very much so, and to Thank to you to, for that. you know, to, uh, to live inside of it and to use it as uh, you know as as strength and as fuel, um, and I think that's something that is uh, you know a very powerful tool in, in all of our toolboxes. Yeah, and the other thing that I would that I would comment on there, uh, just so that we all are are one hundred percent clear on this, is that you know when I'm mentoring people um, going from undergraduate school to graduate school. It's a really interesting transition because we're going from sitting in the classroom where everything is orchestrated and designed, and if we study for the test, we're going to do well, right, into the laboratory where not much works. So you're really going from an A average in the classroom to an F average in the research right. field, right, because things don't work. And and that can be really degrading on people. And I've just found my aversion to the word failures, I've just found over the years that when I use that word, people think of it as a as a not possible to move forward point. Hope you kind of answered this, but you've created a niche for yourself, you know, like you've gotten yourself a seat at the table <laughs> and, and, and that's a hard thing to do. Uh, so do you have any other advice for people who are trying to carve out that niche? You know, there's no seat at the table for you, but you have to kind of create that niche in the world. You know, it's all about being kind to people. It's all about teaching them what you can do and focusing on the positives and not the negatives. You know, I would not have a seat at the table if I got so upset with people and litigated against them for not providing me with the perfect accommodation and all this stuff. People don't like that. They get scared of that and they they lock the table up and they they get scared of liability and they push us away, right? The other thing is we have to be builders, right? So if, if there's a table that we want a seat at that we don't necessarily have a seat at, we have to work to build the new part of the table for us to sit at, right? That's a big part of it. If there's something that you want to do, you might have to create it for yourself, but there's nothing holding you back from creating it. The other advice that I'd give all, all the listeners is that life is just a fun series of challenges and opportunities to explore 
we don't know if today is going to be the last day we're alive or if we're going to live for another 100 plus years. So everything in life is about living in the moment and living every day to your fullest potential so that when you are at a point where you know your life is coming to an end, you can say honestly, I'm super proud of who I am. I'm proud of what I've done. And I don't have any, you know, we're all going to have some regrets, but I don't have many things that I would have done differently, right? And I think that I'm always striving for that. I'm not saying that I, I do that well, necessarily, but it's a goal of mine. And the way that I do that is just to live life with an open mind and not judge people by what they look like or first impressions. Really embrace anything. Don't let anything turn you down or turn you away or turn you off. Just keep at it, keep chipping away, and do it with a, with a smile on your face, with a good sense of humor, and with an open and abundance mindset. And to that end, if any of your listeners want to get a hold of me, I talk to anyone. I will hang up on no one, and I, I will learn from you, and I hope you'll learn from me. So reach out to me anywhere. HOBY.com is a great place to start. And I'll even give my email address. Get, get a hold of me anytime at Hobie, that's H-O-B-Y, at HobieWedler.com, H-O-B-Y-W-E-D-L-E-R.com. You can do anything it is you want. And any barriers that are held up for you are held up by our minds. It's not, doesn't have anything to do with your capabilities. You are wonderful, you are beautiful, and you can do whatever the heck it is that you want. And don't let life and emotions and anyone tell you just on the sidelines that you can't do something. Awesome. Thank you, Hobie. Now you've created some um, really cool pioneering programs like making science more accessible. Uh, also, there's a program you started, I believe, about helping blind people to get in the kitchen, right? Yeah, actually, we're doing some really fun work with Wichita State University Technical Institute. It's a culinary arts program for blind. Is it just youth or is it for all people? No, it's for anyone who wants to learn how to cook. You know, this, uh -huh. this program, this There's university There's still hope for you has, yet, Eric. Yeah, totally. I'll just say this program at Wichita State University is the first in the world aimed, uh, culinary arts program aimed specifically towards blind and visually impaired folks. So... This university accommodates students who are retired, who just decide they want to they want to learn to cook and open their own bakery or cafe or whatever, all the way to people just out of high school. So if there should be nothing to hold us back, we can do whatever it is we want to do. Cool. What else are you excited about and as you look forward to your future, Hobie? Oh man, as I look forward to my future, I, I want to get out and do a lot more speaking. I want to just get more people excited, even more excited than they already are about who they are and what they can do. I also see a lot of opportunity in the uh, in the world of um, of spices and seasonings, and I'm I'm jumping off there in a really exciting way, uh, launching some more products under the Hobie's Essentials line, and I just can't wait to work with and collaborate with as many people as possible on whatever projects they're working on, wherever I can lend a hand and, and, you know, in terms of design consulting or in the food and beverage industry or beyond. Um, I just want to give back and I'm excited about exploring more of the world. You know, I'm not, I'm not rich for money, but I like to think that I am rich with experiences and I can't <laughs> wait looking forward to just experiencing more life and having a ton of fun while doing it. And Hope, you're going to do a blind uh, wine tasting 
at uh, the next summit, maybe, huh? I would love to. I'd love to collaborate in any way that you see possible, and yeah. we're gonna we're gonna make great things happen. Now, when somebody drinks a glass of wine, Hobie, and they like, I taste plum and apricots and currants and blah. How much of that is marketing, and how much of that is like is real? A lot of that is actually real, and I'll tell you yeah. why. Because grapes actually, and and most growing fruits and vegetables have so many different natural products within them that when we ferment them, those products are released. They're encapsulated, encapsulated in little cages of sugar. So when we release them, that's uh, that's kind of what's happening is that we're able to then smell them. So we find when we study wine in the chemistry lab that if someone says it smells like peach, a lot of the same molecules that make peaches smell the way they do are in wine. Wow. If someone says wow. a wine smells like plum, you know, a lot of people will, will think, oh, you know, is this... Uh, Am I crazy for thinking this smells like plum? Actually, not at all. You're noticing things in the wine that remind you of a plum, of a nice ripe plum. So you're not crazy at all. I was actually doing an experience. It was funny. And we were talking about how a wine tasted like chocolate. And someone said to me, so I don't, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to ask this in front of everybody else, <laughs> but do, do winemakers actually add chocolate to their wine? And we said, uh, you know, that's a great question, right? Because we could totally taste, I mean, it tasted like the darkest, biggest, yeah. boldest chocolate flavor around. And wine is, yet wine is just two ingredients. It's yeast and it's grapes. And wine is just a lens to talk about this. There are so many complexities in all sorts of foods and drinks, teas, coffees, spirits, you know, and, and in so many different food groups. And I'm sure, Eric, you've traveled the world and eaten some absolutely wild and incredible foods that, uh, that you can think about through that that sort of lens, and um, you know, it's it's all about experiencing life, experiencing flavor, and uh, just showing refocusing our attention when we're not distracted by eyesight. I did a tasting yesterday uh, for a for a large group as an offsite of olive oil, and you know what we said is, hey, most people hear about olive oil and they think olive oil is olive oil. There's one one olive oil. It's one flavor. It's just olive oil. And what they realize when we taste together is how three different oils can taste absolutely wildly different from one another. Wow. Wow. I see a TV show here, Hobie. I see like a, co a cooking <laughs> travel TV show hosted by that, you. What do you think funny, about that? It's funny, Eric, because that is, that is on the horizon in 23. All right. Very well, cool. I'll be That's on the horizon, so people look out for it. Yeah. <laughs> we should wrap this up, Hobie. We can't keep you all day, but it's been amazing. This is this has been a, such a fascinating conversation, and, and really, uh, you know, not to make a pun, but it's been quite eye-opening. Uh, you know, in uh, you know, from from the way that uh, you know, I've I've learned just how to engage, uh, you know, my all of my other senses, um, and and I really hope everybody, uh, you know, uh, listening and, and watching today, you know, is, is able to take that that approach. Um, you know, that you know, we really have at our disposal. Um, a tremendous amount of uh, of senses that that we don't use, um, and to take Hobie's experiences and his insight, and uh, you know, just his his eloquent way of uh, of discussing it, uh, you know, you know, away from today, and it's been extremely fascinating. Hobie, you've been just really insightful. You've built like this really insightful, cool niche, and uh, you have so much to contribute to the world. I can't wait to see all the things you do. Thank well, you so much for being on the No Berries podcast. It's mutual, guys. Yeah. And thank you to everyone. Thanks to all the listeners. Uh, what I just want to tell your listeners is, well, first of all, thank you so much, Billy and Eric. The, uh, 
The gratitude is uh, mutual. I'm, I'm so excited about this and excited for the future for you guys and for what all of us are going to do together. And to the listeners, thank you for your time. And remember that you deserve to believe in yourself and always be your best self and eliminate the barriers around you. Cool, man. Good advice. Thank you, everyone. No barriers to everyone. Thanks, Billy. Thank you. The production team behind this podcast includes producer Diedrich Jonk, that's me, sound design, editing, and mixing by Tyler Kotman, marketing and graphics support from Stone Ward, and web support by Jamlo. Special thanks to the Dan Ryan Band for our intro song, Guidance. And thanks to all of you for listening. We know that you've got a lot of choices about how you can spend your time, and we appreciate you spending it with us. If you enjoy this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to it, share it, and give us a review. Show notes can be found at NoBarriersPodcast.com. That's NoBarriersPodcast.com. There's also a link to shoot me an email with any suggestions for this show or any ideas you've got at all. Thanks so much and have a great day. See you.